Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show. We took a few weeks off. I was at the Bitcoin conference and doing some other traveling, but we're very excited to be back and share a new episode with you today. In this interview, we interview Stefan von Imhoff, who's the founder of Alts.co, which is a content business about every category of investments besides traditional equities. That could be farmlands, that could be alternative types of real estate, that could be collectibles, it could, of course, be crypto. Could be lots and lots of interesting things. Before that, he was the head of product at Flippa, which is a website that helps people buy and sell micro SaaS and e-commerce businesses. And he also is now launching a fund through Altico for him and his coworkers to be able to invest on their own insights and for outside investors to be able to participate in the potential upside or downside of those decisions. Today, we cover Stefan's favorite alternate investments, Stefan's career arc, and towards the end, the growth marketing strategies for scaling the Altico newsletter to such large numbers so quickly. I know you're going to enjoy this episode, so I'm going to switch over to it now. Stefan, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. We're very excited to be chatting with you today. Glad to be here. Well, I want to walk through, or have you walk through, right? I'm just going to sit here and listen. Uh, Can you walk through for us the kind of quick path from maybe graduating college, finishing up school, and all the things that you were doing before you were doing alts, just so we have some context on your background before you kind of, we do the play-by-play on all sorts of fun investment ideas. Sure, yeah. So after uh, graduating um, UMass Amherst, I um, started a a business. This was an e-commerce business. Um, It was in the video game uh, industry. We were basically selling uh, video game repair parts and accessories and kind of hard to find items like that. Um, grew uh, that really through Amazon and eBay. At one point, we were like the number 12 or 13 seller in the world by volume on eBay, which was really exciting. Um, but then the, the 2008 crash like hit and it hit pretty hard. Uh, we were pretty over leveraged and we didn't go out of business, but like we, you know, we got we got smacked in the face pretty much. And so uh, we were able to kind of like bounce back and climb back, but it was never quite the same as it like used to be. So I ended up selling the business, uh, the entire business, um, uh, actually through a company called Flippa, which uh, is where I was most recently and where I would later become head of product. Uh, but that was years later. Uh, in the interim, I kind of like took some time off after we sold the business to kind of, you know, figure out what I wanted to do. Um, there was a couple of tech companies uh, in Santa Barbara, California, where I was living. I worked at a couple of those, including uh, Citrix, which was like uh, Zoom before Zoom was cool. Um, we, uh, we had some pretty good years there. Uh, then I moved on to lynda.com, which was bought by uh, LinkedIn. And then I was at a company called HG, uh, insights, which was like a data analytics company. And, um, I was in product there and kind of, that's where I, you know, I've, we're a very data driven company today. And I, I got a lot of that from HG and then moved to Australia, uh, where my wife is from about three years ago. And I joined, uh, Flippa, the company that I'd sold uh, my previous business to. And, um, you know, Flip is kind of like coming up in the, you know, it's been around for a while, but it's actually like the, the drumbeat's starting to like only now like get loud around like buying online businesses and thinking about businesses in terms of alternative assets, really. And uh, it was while I was at Flippa um, that I started the um, alternative assets newsletter, which snowballed into uh, Alts.co where we're at today. So that's pretty much the, uh, the path I took uh, to get here. I think that was going to be really helpful for a lot of people. I had no idea that Flippa was around in 2008, 2009. That's that's a really interesting point. They were way ahead of their time. And uh, yeah, the, the market hadn't caught up. Like when, when I sold the business on Flippa, uh, it was like one of the first sales they ever had. And it was like really funny. I was thinking like, wow, I didn't know there was a marketplace for buying and selling businesses. And yeah, it was just like six, seven years too early, you know? 
Uh, now it's like all the rage. You've got Flippa, Empire Flippers, Micro Choirs making big, big moves. Um, and then a whole slew of others, FE International and a bunch. So yeah, the, the drum beat's finally gotten loud on that, on that space. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And that market has changed dramatically. I'm sure the multiples that you could find if you're one of the early people on Flippa are, are a lot more generous, uh, to the buyer, right. than they are in 2022 when you got lots of people with, you know, shouting from the rooftops, quit your job, buy a job, you, you know, all these quick fixes you can do to increase, you know, there's, there's a line, a friend of mine who's super into the kind of micro SaaS ecosystem says, where it's like, there's nothing you can do in an afternoon to 10 X the value of a house. Uh, but there's a bunch of things you can do overnight to 10 X the value of a website and like things like that get popularized Spot and on. people just flock it. And then the market matures and, uh, it's kind of interesting. What was it like working there? Kind of, I don't know the timeline that you were at Flippa and kind of the story you just told for us, but when were you there and what was your experience like on such like a hot trend and like an interesting industry? I saw, well, I was at Flippa from 2019 up until last October. Um, the the big trend I saw is exactly what you you uh, mentioned is that like the multiples have gone up, right? And so, and, you know, that's, that's really good for, um, for everyone. Uh, buyers, you could argue it's not really the best for, but it's whenever anything's going up, multiples are going up. That's a good thing for the marketplace as a whole. And it's especially great for sellers. Um, you know, I think that, uh, it wasn't that long ago. It was probably like four or five years ago. You could buy an online business for like really like maybe a year's worth of net profit, maybe a year and a half. Now that's up to three and a half, four years and climbing. Right. And so, um, the way you know, I kind of looked at it was like, you've got an you've got all these, you know, alternative assets you can invest in. To me, like online businesses, micro SaaS, this is among the best out there because you, um, you've got something that is not only appreciating over time, but it's also cash flowing. Like so many alternative assets, they don't provide any yield, right? It's just basically greater fool theory, like on steroids. I mean, take NFTs, for example. Now the NFT market's like totally crashed now. It's like, there's a very big chasm between the blue chip board apes and like literally everything else. But for a while there, it was basically just greater fool theory on steroids, right? Like there's no yield, there's no cash flow, and there's a ton of assets like that. Some are great, some are not great. I personally, I'm a fan of yield cash flowing assets, right? So websites are up there. Um, I love music rights. That's a huge one. Farmland, that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so I kind of, when I was at Flippa, I, I loved the job. I still, I still, um, am really proud of what I uh, did there, but, uh, it was during, uh, one of our, basically the first COVID lockdown that we had here in Melbourne. And, uh, I had nothing better to do on the weekends for like, you know, like three months straight. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, basically just started writing about what I perceived to be, you know, happening in this new world of alternative investments. Um, started a newsletter it was called the Alter alternative assets newsletter. And there was a couple other folks I like really noticing what was happening at the time, writing about the space. One of them was my co-founder, Wyatt, um, who's now, uh, our, uh, now a co-founder and CIO, Wyatt Cavalier. And he had a newsletter that was on Substack and it was like kind of, it was very similar to mine, but it was also like coming at alternatives from a totally different angle. So he was coming at them from the angle of collectibles and sports memorabilia and what was happening on like the fractional marketplaces, which has just gotten tremendously huge over the past year and a half. Um, so we basically were fans of each other's newsletter. Um, I called him up one day and was like, Hey man, like, you know, 
I we've never met in person, but we've talked a lot. Like, I don't really want to compete with you. You know, I don't know about you. Let's just join forces. You know, let's build something great. And um, so we we joined forces in uh, January of uh, last year. And so we've been a team for about 15 months now. And yeah, it's been going great. We've raised our uh, closed our seed round last October, our pre-seed round last October. Um, we're about uh, three or four days away from launching our first investment fund. By the time this episode airs, that will be live, um, our first investment fund. So all sorts of fun stuff happening. And yeah, super well, excited. We're definitely going to want to dive into that investment fund. But first, can you define for our audience what an alternative asset is? You know, it's a very broad term. Um, so what is a, a traditional non-alternative asset and an alternative asset? It's so funny because you, you ask like someone, you ask 10 people what an alternative uh, investment is and like you get 10 different answers. And that's that's kind of the beauty of it in a way. Um, the way we think about it's really simple, right? Like uh, basically if it's not a stock, we care about it. If it's not equities, right? That's 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 the simplest form. We, we basically cover the world of investing outside of equities. And the whole thesis was like there's a million newsletters, websites, podcasts, YouTube channels, TikTok, all focused on stocks, stocks, stocks. That's fine. That's great. I don't hate stocks. In fact, I love them. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just it's been done, right? Like it's really tough to, you know, uh, make anything happen on that front. Um, whereas like alternatives are just having a moment right now, right? And to answer your question, like, well, you know, what we consider alternatives are we, we focus more on like what we call like modern alternatives, right? So like you think about the history of alts and it's like, you know, you, you, you're looking at stuff like gold, uh, Forex, um, you know, maybe like land and like, you know, art and wine kind of started in the 80s and 90s, but they never really got big up until recently. So we, um, you know, we focus on the on the the more recent, the modern alternatives, right? And there's so much that can be considered alternative these days. I mean, we cover everything. Our whole thing is like we don't build tall, like we build wide. We, you know, you guys are fans of the newsletter. You've been to the site. Like we try to cover like anything and everything that can be considered an alternative. Um, you know, artwork, farmland, wine, crypto. Uh, we get into fun stuff like music rights, film rights. Uh, we did an issue on islands. Um, we've got just the 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 world's your oyster in this world right now, and uh, you know it's it's really exciting to be like you know covering it all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the questions that I have for you about um, the alternative assets that you're covering and alternative assets in general versus stocks is like traditionally, I would say the reason that you would invest in alternative assets is to like hedge against the rest of the market. Like I can buy a piece of real estate, I can add value to it regardless of what the rest of the market is doing. And I can make a return because of whatever capex I have into that building to make it beautiful. Um, and sort of like antithetical to that, some of these fractionalized assets where I'm, I'm buying just like one piece of it. And a lot of the, and a lot of the, um, same way it's like a stock it's just like a stock where you have no control over sure. what happens you're a minority owner um and and so how do you think about um sort of the, the these alternative assets becoming more and more like equities yeah th there's no question that that uh, alternatives are going mainstream and as they do they become more like equities for sure the the market liquidity is already starting to increase um, as the, the, the demand and the supply both increase, they absolutely will become more like equities. Frankly, I'm all for it, right? 
uh, I think that like one of the the reasons that people like kind of get scared off of these markets is because they're so non-transparent, they're so illiquid. There's there's not there's a lot of confusion about how to value a lot of this stuff. And like that's precisely where we come in, right? Like we're trying to uh, raise the education level on all of these markets for for everyone, it, really for ourselves, so that we can be the best fund managers that we can be. But then also we'll take everyone else along for the ride, you know, so you can learn as we learn and we explore these new markets together. I think the thing to remember though is like with alternatives is that every market is different, like truly different. There's some similarities between a few of the stu- uh, collectible stuff, but like. For the most part, like the market for comic books is just completely different from the market for wine. The market for domain names is completely different than the market for farmland. And so we, we try to like uh, look at each market individually, understand what's happening and the trends that are happening in each market um, in order to make the best like recommendations and also just be the best fund managers that we can be. But yeah, they are they are wildly different, all of these markets, and especially now because because they're so early and because the... Um, you know, the bid ask spreads on some of this stuff, this fractional stuff is like so large, right? Like there's, it's an exciting time. It's a, uh, there's a lot of arbitrage opportunity and there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, basically folks and companies like us to come in and explain and provide data, provide analysis, do comp analysis and really make sense of it all. Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity for, for uh, fractionalization market makers where a market maker come in, comes in and, and um, you know, takes the bid and gives the ask. Maybe I'm mixing that up. But uh, in order to shore up some of that liquidity in these markets, because I, I think that that is like the biggest fear that people have. And, and the problem that, you know, these companies are running into is they have to basically say, we'll buy it from you no matter what, which is like, uh, um, you know, not what you want. Or, or they're effectively acting as the market maker. And so I think in the future, we'll see we'll see a lot of. Um, people make a lot of money in that space for sure. Um, that's smart. That's really smart. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They are the market makers effectively right now. And that's kind of a double edged right. sword, right? Um, but yeah, as the space matures, I mean, it's, you know, not to use that cliche, it is still definitely very early days. Uh, as these markets mature, you know, I think we'll, we'll definitely see um, not just market makers, but also, you know, new types of derivatives. Like right now, you can't really short uh, many of these markets or any of uh, almost any of these markets. Um, there's no options trading, right? There's no um, there's no margin lending with this stuff, at least not yet, at least not in most of these markets. So all of that, I think, will come. Uh, I'm smiling because uh, Kyle and I are both drinking out of obnoxious full water gallons for some reason today, and that's not something that we always do. Uh, so that we we synchronize the fact that neither of us could uh, could have a cup. Uh, that's amusing. Kyle, who were you saying was the market maker? Like you're. Because you both kind of said they, oh the platform so, so like so rally like road like for example like, yeah exactly so because you know they're just gonna have to continuously buy art and so you can kind of assume like well take like yeah i think there's a, a few different problems to it it's like there's no marketplace where you know it, it's sort of a problem where you have to match a buyer and a seller together at the same time in order to make a deal happen uh between an asset or you have to like list it um, and so effectively these platforms are, are buying it and then reselling it on the market in order to provide liquidity to the holders of these, uh, fractionalized, um, assets, I guess you would call it, or, or fractionalized pieces of assets in order for, in order to guarantee liquidity to their customers, which is, you know, something that they are concerned about. And maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Stefan, if you want to jump in there. No, no, no. You're not wrong. It's not as common as Mm -hmm. you'd think, though. Um, It it definitely happens. 
but like uh, not to speak for any of the platforms, but that's not a, a standard okay. thing. And it, what, what what mostly is happening is that uh, the platforms through Reg A, they'll basically um, they you know they they micro IPO these assets. And they basically just pre-fund them, right? So, like, yeah. they're able to solicit uh, funding before the asset actually goes live. Um, now, they could, if a, if an asset was having trouble getting funded, they could certainly help fund it. We suspect that's happened in, in some cases. It's not terribly common. Uh, sometimes it just takes a while for for different assets to get funded. But as the whole space grows, remember, we're talking like the entire, I, I don't want to give numbers, but these are still very small markets, right, in terms of sheer number of people and sheer like transaction volume. So, you know, as that grows, the liquidity will come. And I think that problem actually will start to go away after a while. Yeah. And if you're interested, if anybody's listening, you can go to alt.co and, and jump around and you'll find uh, alt.co. Alt.co. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> first link in the description. You can find it easily. Um, there's a, a big list that I was looking through earlier. Uh, it was an air table of uh, all of the fractionalized assets on like a few different platforms. And I was bouncing around that. It's super interesting. So if you're, if you're out there listening, go and check that out. Would you say, I was going to ask if it was kind of fair to say the source of why Kyle and I might've like been asking that question or had that assumption is like, just kind of like a assumption that these markets are small to like, like these markets, are, like we're, we're kind of over assuming the market share that these platforms have. Is that kind of like the source of that discrepancy? Yeah. Look, I think all of us are early adopter types, right? Um, clearly, you know, uh, you got to remember the average person in uh, America still probably doesn't even know what Bitcoin is, let alone what an NFT is, let alone what a fractional investment is. I mean, like when you live in this world of early adoption, like it's it's hard to stay grounded and stay real. But, um, you know, it, it is definitely early days. That's that's all there is to it. I'm actually amazed at how liquid these markets are um, even today. Like, you know, like it, it just shows that people have, you know, on the demand side, there's so much appetite for investing in passion assets, investing in culture. And and it goes beyond a lot of even like what you see on like on like uh, platforms like Rally Road today, like uh, Rally's done a terrific, terrific job of of, of really everything. There's so there's so much out there, and and the thing is with these markets, like there's really no like limit to like what can be uh, what can be you know fractionalized and micro IPO'd, right? Like the, the, it's it's just a matter of creativity and demand and supply. It's not to say you're going to make money on everything. I mean, you know, I I couldn't I could technically fractionalize this glass of water. I would cost a lot in compliance and I probably wouldn't get too many buyers. But the principle is the same. Right. Like and so it's kind of like an endless supply of cool stuff that you can basically fractionalize. So, yeah, I mean, we're definitely just getting started. And um, the the early demand indicates that that we're a long ways away from anything close to, uh, you know, you know, seeing any sort of peak on this anytime soon. Yeah. I think kind of like in my head, I'm assuming masterworks is like represents 40%, right. Or like some like obscene number of penetration just cause like I listen to 10 podcasts and masterworks oh. advertises on four of them. So it's just like share in my head is just oh, yeah. it's living way too rent free when in reality, like the majority of our collectors, <laughs> right. With like 99% of important pieces, maybe don't even know about uh, Yeah. Something like that. Masterworks is a great example to use because, like, yeah, Masterworks is absolutely uh, pushing the um, the conversation forward. Like when you you know when you talk about what an alternative investment is, art is going to come up uh, you know close to the top of most people's lips now because 
Exactly, because Masterworks is spending uh, an amazing amount of money, uh, really bringing alts into the mainstream. So yeah, that that's that is a great that is a great example. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one mistake that Kyle and I occasionally make as podcasters is like wanting to not jump into the obvious question right off the bat, and then occasionally not even getting to it because then we just like avoided just like jumping out with, with the low hanging fruit. So I'm going to make sure we ask you right now about farmlands before we. So we don't run the risk of missing one of like your key, awesome, like most interesting things you you have to talk about. Uh, so, what is your attraction to farmland as like an especially seductive, especially important alternate investment? Uh, that kind of again, your platform it's very impressive. The breadth of things that you cover, and then when you go in and click to read the articles, you're like, okay, this isn't just like a one second summary either. This is like substantial coverage of a huge amount of things. Uh, but it seems like every time you give your elevator pitch, farmland makes the cut, despite that huge variety. Uh, so there's got to be a reason for that. And I'm just gonna pass the mic to you to. Sing its praises. There's there's nothing more real than farmland. I mean, we 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 don't we don't need apes. You know, we don't need bored apes. We don't even need stuff uh, that I'm also bullish on, like music rights and stuff. But everyone needs to eat. I mean, this is as simple as it gets. They ain't making any more of it. Like they say about real estate, they they ain't making any more of it. I mean, farmland. You you've got first of all, you it, it returns it generates returns from both both the the crops the yield. Uh, literally and figuratively, the yield and the land appreciation, right? There's less and less farmland each year in the U.S., right? It's all getting developed. It's getting, the, you know, suburban sprawl is happening. There's there's literally no, as long as the, the world population keeps growing, like the, the the demand for farmland will never like go away. And there's there's less and less of it each year. It's also an unsexy asset, right? Like it's not... It's not like you can make a lot more in crypto. You can make a lot more with other, you know, alternatives. Uh, but man, is it stable and consistent, right? Like it's just it's it's not for people who want like overnight like you know uh, returns that are going to moon. Like it's it's for it's just it's it's the most stable like consistent um, you know asset you can really conceive of. Um, it's also um, been one of the first you know. So you think about like the history of like fractionalization and like. Um, the, the first companies that really started kind of like doing fractionalization were, were real estate companies. You know, first it was through REITs um, and then it was through like, you know, companies like Lex and Realpha um, and a lot of the, the companies that fractionalized both residential and commercial real estate. Of all the asset classes out there, the, the most number of them are in real estate. Uh, now there's a couple in farmland as well. There's Acre Trader, there's Farm Together, there's Farmfolio, and they're all they're all doing quite well. I think... Um, uh, they've all had uh, Series B raises at this point, I believe, and um, you know there's good reason for that. I think that uh, you know when you talk about like you know when when markets are down and people get you know jittery nerves, they they flock to to, to things that they perceive to be safe in the in the long run. And you know farmland is is definitely up there. Um, I like how not sexy it is. I like that uh, people don't think about it right away. Um, but look, there's a reason Bill Gates is like one of the biggest landowners in the world now. And like, I think number number one, I believe in the US, he's buying up farmland like crazy. Like it's, it is literally the future. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I can sing his praises all day and all night. I, I think it's fantastic. Now, uh, I actually don't personally, I have not made a farmland investment yet myself. Um, I have, I have uh, a fair amount of real estate, but none of it's farmland. Uh, it's the next big uh, asset that I'll be investing in uh, without question. It's just a matter of, um, you know, really researching the absolute heck out of like what, uh, you know, uh, w w which opportunity and is I, best. And I had a question there. Uh, you mentioned this on other podcasts and something I've encountered as well, just from my limited research on the subject. But 
why do you think that these farmland fractionalization platforms have much higher minimums than like like Fundrise, right? You can get into Fundrise with maybe $20 and make an account and buy that fraction of real estate. But why do you think that farmland still has these really high high barriers to entry, even in this world of fractionalization? There's uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it's it's really it costs a lot of money to uh, service uh, low end investments, right? Um, and let me actually take a step back from there and say that there's there's a couple of different uh, when you're looking to fractionalize, a couple of different ways you can you can do do this. Um, there's uh, you know what's called Reg A, which is basically a um, uh, a child of the Jobs Act 2012 under Obama. Um, this is what allowed for really a Reg A plus is what it's uh, it's called. This is what allowed for the this the easy securitization of um, fixed assets that uh, anyone can invest in, whether you're accredited or not. Um, and so this is where there's a lot of companies, especially like the real estate companies have come up and they say, yeah, minimums as low as $1,000. I saw something the other day, like minimums as low as $100. But as the space matures, I think what you realize is that um, the uh, it actually is quite, it's quite expensive to, to service the low end. And you got to make sure that you you really, like just from a compliance standpoint, right? So it cuts into your margins. That's That's number one. The other thing with farmland, unlike other real estate, is that farmland investments are not overnight successes, right? This is something you want to hold for 10 years. And in fact, many of these platforms and farm funds and farm REITs, they, they, um, you know, they require you to hold on or, or they, they require them. They have a mandate basically to hold for like 10, 12 years, right? Um, now, this is like, you know, I know it's like totally antithetical to like how millennials and Gen Z think about investing. But um, you don't really want, you know, if that's the case and if this is all about a long term investment, you don't really want people committing only 100 bucks or 500 bucks. Like you want someone who's going to commit like ten, twenty thousand $20,000 because otherwise you have to service the, their uh, investment. You, they may want to pull out early. You may, that may not be in your best interest, right? So it's just like a different type of investment and a different type of investor. Uh, that, this is all a guess, but I think it's a pretty educated one. Yeah, and I think you probably see a lot less trading hands of that that farmland. And uh, the trading is where a lot of these companies make a lot of their money, right? Um, from the transaction fees, et cetera, that they get. So if it's a baseball card, you're probably seeing more turnover than a, um, you know, a, a income yield producing asset. Um, yeah, and there's less wild swings in farmland. You know, it's um, you know, it's not like you look on the fractional platforms today. They're you know fractionalizing collectibles and stuff like that. Like baseball cards can go up forty five percent one day, down three hundred percent next month. I mean, it's there. It's wild, right? It's like total wild west, and it's just because there's not a, there's not as there's not as much. Uh, uh, you know, data information, understanding of what the true value of an asset is. But with farmland, it's pretty much just a function of, you know, uh, land, uh, size, revenue, location, et cetera. So um, the, the markets are a lot more educated around this stuff. And you just you don't get like wild swings just in general in that asset class. So it's just not as conducive to like day right, trading, yeah. you know. It's um, a, a more like firm intrinsic value factor. Mm -hmm. And you can value the cash flows according yeah. to uh, the rent and the, the crop and, you know, the futures and everything like that. Um, I have a question, yeah. Lewis. I don't know if you have one teed up or not, but um, go for it, Kyle. So I think you know one of the first things people come to when, they, when they're talking about fractionalization and considering their first investment is like, okay, well, how do I or how does this company decide um, how this asset gets sold, how the underlying asset gets sold, and how I get uh, my return? And so, what what has been sort of like the best strategy for that that you've seen through all the different platforms and 
um, you know, all the different players? It's a great question. I think a, a lot of companies are kind of trying to, to figure this out um, as we as we speak. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I think the, the one that's the most interesting to me is what a company called Franchares is doing. Um, I'm not sure. Are you guys familiar with, with Franchares? I'm on, I'm on the waitlist. Um, or, or not the waitlist. You are on yeah, the waitlist. I, uh, I know how I found them. Might have been through you. Might have been. I don't know. I, I found them recently. I found them. With it, from the time that we first communicated about putting this podcast together, whether it was four or five weeks ago, it was after that. So I'm going to give you some credit, right, for like, for the fact that I discovered that. I was like reading the white paper. I had like a note to send it to a guest of ours who's like a franchise guy. Like, but I haven't made it much past that yet. I got like the white paper on my desktop. Really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I will take credit for that. I think I may have been through our newsletter. They're a great partner That's of ours. Like um, we're actually their number one referrer. Yeah. <laughs> I love what they're doing. Kenny, uh, the founder, is is fantastic. And um, he comes from, uh, he was a franchise broker, basically. And then he realized, like, there's a great opportunity to fractionalize fran- franchise businesses. But what he's doing is different. So, um, you know, like the economics of these funds are, uh, or these, these models uh, can vary quite a bit. Um, so when, when franchise like, uh, when a franchise is brought into the fund, um, like 80% of the, the startup, the, the costs are, are crowdfunded by investors and the, the remaining 20% is funded by franchise. So franchise is basically a co-investor with other, uh, investors. And so they, they kind of like, they look to identify the right, like franchisee and they kind of act as like the broker in the model. Um, where like franchisers pay a fee to get into the fund. So basically what, what all of this means is that they're essentially fi- they're offering financing for the franchisee. And if you own a franchise, financing is a really big deal for you. you. You can go to a bank or you can do traditional finance. But, you know, if, if someone like franchise comes along and offers a, a compelling um, fr- uh, uh, financing model, you know, that um, uh, might be interested to you, like you're definitely going to listen. And so I think that's why they've, they've had a lot of success with this. What this also allows franchises to do, though, is that um, they charge investors zero fees, right? Um, that's rare. That's tough to do in a fund or uh, in any sort of platform like this, right? Uh, investors just don't like fees, and um, it's always easy to compete on fees, right? This person does two and twenty. This person does one and twenty. This person does one and ten, right? There's a, there's a lot of like undercutting that can happen, and so. Um, yeah, what they've been able to do with their unique model is basically uh, cut cut fees out for the investors completely. And um, there's not a lot of companies doing that, frankly. Even like, and I, you know, it's we have very different model, very different businesses. But like with our fund, we're we're, we're not doing that. Like we have fees, like they're, they're worth it. It's all good. But um, yeah, having a fee-less uh, kind of um, model is is pretty rare. So uh, hats off to Kenny uh, and the franchise team for for pulling that off. Let's jump into the the fund that you you're alluding to. Uh, what what are you investing in? How how much are you raising? Or, or any information that you you want to talk about or, or advertise yeah. here? Yeah. Sure. So you know it's funny because like when we first started the um, business together, Wyatt and I, like this was something that was coming up over and over again. People within the community being like, look. Your recommendations are awesome. Do it like, for me. You know, like, can we just like <laughs> yeah. invest in them? Do it for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to beat you. <laughs> like, just give me like a basket of your, your, it, there you go. You know, and I think like there's, it's funny because like within our community, we have like a lot of day traders and then we also have like a lot of um, folks that are just kind of passively exploring alts. Right. And um, so this is a solution uh, for, for them. It's a, 
a modern way to diversify your portfolio. It's a meticulously chosen blend of alternatives across all of the, the markets that, that we know best and that we uh, know that we can uh, give ourselves the best chance of having fantastic returns. So that's centered around collectibles and culture, right? Um, nostalgia, sports cards, uh, video games, comics, uh, Pokemon, uh, vinyl records. That's a that's a big one. Uh, I mean, vinyl is like coming back. Vinyl is totally undervalued right now. I'm a little biased because I'm a huge music fan. I think I mentioned music rights earlier. This is separate. This is actual physical vinyl records. Uh, toys are having a moment. So that's kind of like the the forms of the the core of of what we'll be investing in. Um, probably about a third of the fund will go into collectibles and culture and passion assets. Uh, we're looking to make some opportunistic bets in crypto and NFTs. So, you know, love them or hate them. There's no denying the crypto and NFTs can be extremely profitable. Um, our strategy is going to make the most of like staking, liquidity pools, play to earn dynamics, you know, across the mixed portfolio of, of mostly blue chip and then also maybe some up and coming, some uh, up and coming assets and altcoins. Um, artwork will be a part of this. So, um, you know, again, uh, Masterworks is leading the charge here. There's other art uh, platforms and funds out there. Um, we've got uh, uh, wine will be a big part. There's a lot happening in the wine space. Wine, by the way, has been one of the biggest winners ever since the, um, you know, the, let's call it the 2022 market crash for, you know, call it what it is. Um, you know, we, we see all these markets and what's happening in all of them. And uh, the sad reality is a lot of these are actually correlated with each other, right? Like, I mean, take crypto, for example, that was supposed to be the big hedge against the market. It turns out, no, crypto is just completely in lockstep with equities at this point, right? Uh, but wine is one of those that, that is completely, completely uh, uh, um, not in, in lockstep at all. It's, um, it's truly a way to diversify. Um, the one I really love, uh, we're probably only going to allocate about 5-10% of the fund to this, but is music rights. It's one of the most exciting, underrated, underrated alternative asset classes out there. Um, you know, we, we're going to be working with industry experts uh, to uh, find uh, catalogs that are, um, you know, under a million dollars. And I don't know how much you guys know about like music rights investing. There's a couple of large funds out there. Uh, Hypnosis is the big one. They're like a juggernaut. But you see the, these the, the big funds and like the big hedge funds, they they wouldn't touch anything like below like like forget a million. They wouldn't touch anything below like fifteen twenty million dollars. It's just not worth it for them, right? There's the fact is there's not a lot of funds out there that are buying catalogs on the low end. So we are really excited to be basically one of the first ones to uh, to do this. Uh, we're also looking to allocate towards what we call specialty real estate, right? So that's well things like franchises. Uh, but also holiday homes, farmland, of course. And then um, one that I love is uh, uh, ADUs or um, uh, is it adjacent uh, or know, additional uh, alter alternative dwelling or units. Or alternative. Is it adjacent, additional uh, or alternative? That's, that's always been my question. Whenever I bring it up know, in conversation, I'm like, it could be any of these three. Uh, I'm not going to. Oh, 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 ADU. Yeah. A ADU. Oh, it stands for accessory. Accessory. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. That's pretty close to adjacent. Yeah. But yeah. But but yeah. you're right. It, <laughs> but you know, you know what's funny because adjacent works as well, and alternative works as well. So yeah, they're, they're uh, it's kind of a multi uh, thing going on. But yeah, yeah, uh, ADUs are fantastic. Um, and additional, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, ADUs, no matter what you call them, though, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. Absolutely. Um, I, I have an ADU uh, that uh, my wife and I built uh, with uh, our, our house in, um, in Santa Barbara. Uh, to this day, literally, uh, the the single best. 
risk-adjusted investment I've ever made in my life, like without question. Um, it was profitable after three years. Uh, it was just, uh, it is a, a dream investment. Um, and I, I'm surprised there's not more ADU funds out there. I'm surprised there's, there's not as much, I'm surprised finance hasn't gotten involved to the degree that I, I think they mm. could. Um, and again, it's just a lot of it's because it's, it takes so much effort, right? Like the, the large funds don't have the, I mean, it's just well, really tough when you run a billion dollar fund because they deploy capital. I, I think it's also because they're wrong. Real estate, right? Well, I mean, you know, in Sam Zell's book, one of the greatest real estate investors of all time, he talks about how in the 1950s, of the all these pension funds, they didn't even have they didn't even have real estate on their balance sheet. They didn't consider it an investment that was worth, uh, you know, using. And now it's like the backbone of every financial institution in the entire world. And so like, it's just early, like all of these things will come out in the future. There will be ADU hedge funds in the future or, or, you know, any other uh, alternative asset fund. And so I think it's, it's really interesting what you're doing. Um, when does this fund open? When will it end? Is it a rolling fund? What kind of, uh, are, are you doing two and 20 or, or what's the, the structure? And is it accredited investors only? This is a, sorry. Yeah, this is a, oh, it's a great questions. Um, so this is a one in 20 fund. Uh, you do have to be a accredited investor in the U.S. If you are international, you do not need to be accredited um, through something called a Reg S exemption. Um, but yeah, if you are in the U.S., you do need to be accredited. Uh, the minimum investment is $20,000. This is a 10-year fund. Uh, we are looking to raise uh, $10 million on this fund. And importantly, we are looking to uh, develop a secondary market for trading shares of of not just this fund, but all of our funds in the future. And we're aiming uh, for the end of uh, 2022. That's on that. incredibly interesting. As far as when this fund will go. Let's double click yeah. on that. It's exciting. So we, sure. So what does that yeah. mean? So this is what's this is what's. So this is what's happening with a lot of um, a lot of platforms. You see this happening. Um, we actually had uh, a big deep dive on Farm Together. Back to farming again, I know, but we had a big deep dive on Farm Together recently, and um, you know that's a uh, that's a long buy and hold process, like we talked about as well. So they are potentially looking at um, doing uh, opening up a secondary market um, for their uh, for shares of each of their um, investments as well. This is something that the market definitely wants. Like you know, it's. Um, there's uh, there's a lot that goes into that. You, there's a lot of compliance and paperwork, and um, it won't be easy. But it is definitely something that we know that our investors are going to want. I, as an investor in this fund, is definitely going to want that as well. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to make that happen. Uh, th- there's no firm date on that, to be clear, but we are aiming for end of this year, um, end of 2022. The fund itself will be live by the time this podcast airs. Um, we are looking at March 26th on that. That's amazing. And and so just to be clear, what that would mean as an investor in your fund is that I could sell my right or my holding in your fund to another person, right? Yeah, it's not the right. It's yeah, okay, the actual okay. shares. Uh, so basically, um, and, and yeah, and you're, so you're, you're buying of shares of the yeah. uh, not over that 10 year time horizon, that 10 year hold period, but in, in a much shorter period of time, theoretically, if, um, you know, this becomes a, a um, actualized idea. 
That's it. It's a secondary market. I mean, it's um, it's something that we, you know, it, it'll be tricky to bring to life, but it's definitely something that is very doable. It's been done. Um, it continues to be done. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're uh, we're dead set on doing That's it. Awesome That's for sure. I agree with that. I want to, I have some logistic questions, not logistics. That's not the right word, but so you've been around for a year, roughly 15 months, uh, I guess formally, right? Cause I'm sure you've been a hobbyist and enthusiast and passionate for a long time leading up to the time you were, you actually, you know, hit the start button or made things official. Uh, or as the kids say, Instagram official, maybe that's what the, the kids don't say anymore. They say, maybe they say TikTok. Um, but, uh, Kyle, Kyle's over there. Not sure where I'm going with this. Uh, how, what's the composition long way of asking what's the composition of your team. So it's just the two of you writers, but now you got, I mean, it seems like a lot of volume of content for just two writers to handle fun structure. Maybe you might need someone more sophisticated than a writer. You might meet like, you know, like an analyst who's got a different skill set than just a writer. Like what's the composition of the team at this point in time with kind of all the pots you've put your hands in, in the past 15 months or so. After we closed our seed rounds in, uh, our, I say our pre-seed round last October, um, we got busy on, on three fronts. Number one, uh, acquisition. Um, we are, ripping right now on acquisition uh nine ten thousand new subscribers each month about 350 per day just like a knife through warm butter it's it's amazing it's a really exciting um really exciting stuff uh so that's going great uh number two was uh we got our uh, we hired a head of finance and ops got our legal and regulatory paperwork so that we could bring this reg d fund to life and that's um exactly what's what's happened um, and number, and that also includes hiring a. Um, uh, so why why my co-founder is a chief investment officer? We hired a, an ex Wall Street um, woman to um, join uh, on the as a fund analyst. Um, they'll be run, they'll effectively be the fund managers um, for the this uh, the alts one fund we're calling it. Um, the uh, so that's underway. The the um, the next step for us is um, we're actually looking to you know we, we want to do a lot more than just this one fund right like we're really starting to get into land grab mode and expand. Um, so we uh, are currently a team of six full time, and uh, we've got about nine to ten part time contributors, um, authors, researchers, analysts that help us um, everything from analyzing markets, creating um, uh, press releases, um, uh, figuring out what makes sense to invest in from uh, for the fund, figuring out what to recommend for our um, our newsletters, writing the newsletters. We've got our podcaster. I don't know if you've heard our podcast, Horatio. He's awesome. Um, so uh, yeah, six full-time and about nine, 10 uh, part-time. That clears that up. Uh, Kyle, are you about to jump in with something? Yeah, you're frozen, Lewis. Uh, so I just couldn't tell <laughs> what you were up to. Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, that's really remarkable. The uh, and it seems like I mean, also like all the pieces are necessary. And you know, we've asked a ton of people who have different businesses and different stages of growth. Like, you know, what's your philosophy on hiring the people? And there's kind of a pretty consistent answer across the board. That's like, feel the burn for a minute to validate that there's a need for this person. And right, you're not just like being lazy by like having someone take over something you don't want to do. Uh, and it sounds like you know there's a clear seat for every person you've described being involved at this point. Um, I want to backtrack quickly one question before I forget because I think a lot of people have this question as well. Is you mentioned the difficulty in some of these markets of playing the other side, right? Being the bear. How does your fund plan to manage that, right? If there's not an ability, I don't know if it's considered a hedge fund and if you plan on like hedging positions, but how do you, if the majority of your assets don't have an ability to play the other side or protect your downside? 
how what's your plan for like that side of the funds uh, strategy? So for the markets that we invest in, there's effectively no real way to short, right? If that's kind of what the, the definitely you know the buried lead is here. Um, however, all of this, all of what we're investing in, is a giant hedge. I won't we'll call it a short, that's for sure. But it's a giant hedge against drumroll, please, equity markets, right? Um, which, uh, you know, that's really what we're offering here, right? Like, and it's funny because that's what hedge funds in general are supposed to offer. And they kind of stopped offering it as they get bigger. It just gets really extremely difficult to, to have any sort of advantage, any sort of edge. And when you have a billion dollars under management, um, I mean, it's just it get, becomes really difficult to get outstanding returns. Look at the top, the largest hedge funds in the world. Look at the performance uh, in 2021. It's abysmal. It's like an average of six to eight percent. Like we don't have that problem. We're small. We are into assets that other aren't even on hedge funds as radars, let alone in their um, investment theses. Right. So. You know, maybe someday we'll have that problem. It's not going to happen anytime soon. So to answer your question, like, there's no way to short the markets we're in. We're not interested in that at this point. Um, maybe someday that that will be the case, but the markets are just not mature enough for that, anyways. All of this is a hedge against equities, really, is what it comes down to. So we're really looking for things that are uncorrelated to the stock market, and there's plenty of them out there, um, and that's what we're looking to invest in. Yeah, so it kind of falls on the individual investor to buy other things outside of your portfolio. I think that makes sense. Uh, I want to dive into the acquisition part of this. You said you're growing like crazy. Where's that coming from? Is that your own podcast is popping off, your personal Twitter, company Twitter, Substack? Where, where are the people finding you uh, and converting into readers, customers, potential investors? Uh, <laughs> it's a mix of things. Uh, but I'll, I'll say that I, I can't give the exact uh, breakdown, but I'll definitely say this. Like... Um, Newsletter sponsorship sponsorships have been a huge part of our growth story. Um, it is actually there's two big stories to our growth. Uh, one has been newsletter sponsorships, um, and the other has been uh, actually uh, a growth hack, which I learned from Flippa, and uh, that is basically buying other newsletters and buying micromedia companies, right? Um, so let's take those one by one. So sponsoring other newsletters has been very successful for us because we are uh, a huge newsletter ourselves. So if you think of, you put yourself in the user uh, shoes of a user, you're reading Finimize or you're reading, um, you know, downtown Josh Brown or like any of like whoever you're reading, right? And you see an ad for another financial newsletter that's, by the way, covering stuff that the one you're reading isn't covering uh, and they have a ton of content. I mean, it's just kind of like a simple, low friction, like, yeah, it's an easy decision. Sure. Like, I already love stocks. Like, yeah, I hear about alts coming up. Like, okay, cool. Like, well, these guys are covering alts. Let's let's see what that's all about. So, that's definitely been a very um, uh, big part of our growth story. It's been sponsoring other newsletters, not just financial ones, by the way, but um, but definitely financial do ones you as use well. Like a, the other side of our growth story. Sorry, this is like a detailed question, but do you use like a Spark Loop or like any kind of special like one-click opt-in, or do you take people to a landing page and they have to, or like, or is it like a, a native? in the email client that can press one button and then auto get on your list. Cause I know there's some options there and the conversion rates are probably important. That's a really interesting question. We um, have tried a bunch of different things. You know what I find just works the best is literally just taking people to the homepage. Um, as long as the, uh, for us, like as long as the, um, the subscribe box is above the fold and um, prominent, 
is actually it actually works just as well as any other like landing page. Plus, they have the added benefit of like exploring and stuff. Even if the conversion was a little bit lower there, which occasionally it can be, I feel like it's a higher quality subscriber because it's not just someone who got coaxed into subscribing and putting their email address into a form on some random page. It's like someone who like explored and like really wants the info and so they're less likely to unsubscribe later right so even if the conversion is a little lower my hunch i don't have a good way of getting the data on this unfortunately my hunch is that it's actually a higher quality subscriber that we're getting anyways but yeah i mean we basically we've tried different methods and we basically mostly send people to the homepage at this point and let them just explore from there and if they want the content great and if not that's fine too you know um yeah thank you even the flip uh growth hack what was the yeah, the buying buying newsletters. Yeah, this is this is it's an underrated growth hack, guys. Like I cannot stress this enough. I mean, so we um I'll tell you a quick story. So uh the we we've we've bought a couple of different newsletters um in the past year and a half. And uh we're always have our eye on on buying more, uh buying micromedia companies, um, even buying web apps and micro SaaS companies that are in in the financial sector and uh, that will never not be a thing of, you know, a part of what we do. It's, I know how valuable it is coming from Flippa and coming from this world and it's underrated and it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. The story I'll tell you is this. Uh, so before our, our pre-seed raise, we were looking to boost subscribers. And so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go on this, uh, subscriber blitz where we would just ramp up our referral program like crazy, where we would, um, uh, advertise in a bunch of spon- uh, sponsor a bunch of different newsletters to really kind of like just give the subscribers that kick going into our pre-seed uh, round, right? Uh, it looks good, it feels good, it shows momentum, makes sense. I reached out to this one newsletter. It was a newsletter called Arc Watcher, and basically this was an automatically generated Python script that um, uh, just tracked the daily moves of Arc uh, Arc's Wood funds, Kathy yeah. Wood's funds, right? Yeah. Now they've been getting hammered lately. <laughs> like, you know, we won't go into that. But the point is, people still want to know what she's buying, what they're selling. Um, and so this was an automatically generated uh, newsletter based on a Python script that just basically scrapes Spark, Arc's website and spits it into a nice format. It shows historical detail. It has a nice website. And long story short, I, I reached out to the uh, um, the founder. And I was like, hey, man, um, you know, I'm looking to do some uh, sponsorship. Like, do you have space in your newsletter? And he's like, uh, you know, actually, uh, you have good timing. You know, uh, I'm actually thinking of selling the newsletter. And I'm like, let's talk, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I called him up and I can't remember the exact details, but we uh, we basically made a deal like in the next like probably 72 hours. Um and I basically just bought the the newsletter outright from him, um, kept it going, still around today. Um, and uh, it was a great way to boost subscribers. I can't get into the exact numbers, but uh, we, we got it for a steal. It was a good deal. And uh, we were able to really just drastically quickly boost our subscriber base um, by about, I think it was about nine or 10,000 subscribers. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, you know, I've been, I've been chasing that high ever since. <laughs> Will the fund be buying whole assets and then fractionalizing them? We will be, this is not a necessarily a strict fund of assets and it's also not necessarily a strict fund of funds. It's a fund of funds and a fund of assets. So we'll be buying into funds um, at, a, at a better deal than the retail investor could get. 
We'll be buying uh, full assets outright, just literally just going to an auction, buying a signed Beatles record and that vaulting it and, and insuring it and storing it. And, and that's on the books, right? We'll also be buying fractional investments, uh, fractional shares of existing assets that are on, again, you know, Acre Trader, Farm Together, uh, Rally, etc. right? Um, but we will not be fractionalizing assets sure. ourselves. That's not something that we'll be we'll be we'll be doing. So you're you're. Um, uh, yeah. I hope that makes sense. Still in the newsletter idea because I really like this idea. Uh, for you, it's not an idea. For me, it's an idea. For you, it's a recollection of a strategy that you've already performed. But do you for these newsletters? The Python script is a bad one to ask this question for. So I'm going to ask it just for a hypothetical other one. Do you keep the writer in place? Do you hire a new writer? Is this about you get to put like now you have free ad space to a list all the time? Do you add the subscribers to your main list? Like what? Like you buy the newsletter that's not automated and has a writer. What comes next? We've we we haven't um, bought a newsletter that did not come that that came with a writer. Um, but it's a great question because that is a a thing that other people that are talking about this. Uh, are talking about right like how do you avoid the key man risk right when you or key woman risk uh, when you buy a newsletter that has a very uh, specific style that's been built up over the years right it's a great question um, so we, we haven't actually run into that ourselves I happen to love the auto-generated newsletters for exactly that reason you don't actually have to hire someone who comes along with it um, but that, that there's only so many of those out there there's a lot more newsletters that come with a writer. We will definitely face that at some point, maybe even in the next few months. I'm talking to a few newsletters right now. We're looking to maybe purchase. I can't name names, but they would maybe come with the writer or come with a buyout situation or or a continuity contract where the writer keeps it going for six months in his or her voice. So these are all great questions and, and something that people are definitely um, uh, definitely have to consider when buying newsletters um we haven't personally had it yet though so do you but do you get to import the subscribers to your main list is that like you have to get an additional permission like how do you actually convert the fact that you have ten thousand new subscribers on a separate list to get them in the funnel you eventually want them in that's a great question so you aren't technically allowed to just um let's be clear for a moment like if i bought a newsletter you know called finance world whatever uh and that was sent each day from financeworld.com and i bought that newsletter uh so technically speaking i would have the right to start sending newsletters to that audience under alts.co but it would be a disaster right like the, the i mean that is one way email. ticket to spam complaints oh yeah so exactly so for one thing's for sure, when you buy a newsletter or any digital web asset, you've got to buy the, the website itself. You've got to buy the email domain. The like That all has to come with it, right? Um, there's a whole bunch of technical like email deliverability stuff I won't get into. But suffice to say, um, there are very strict things that you, you should follow. I've done a very good job of this. I have made one mistake in doing this. It did cost me. Uh, I thought it was a small mistake, but, you know, it's... You know, you don't, you don't want to make any mistakes. Um, I've learned a lesson from that. But you got to be, it's a very delicate, sensitive thing. Over time, you do and can certainly migrate from one email address to another. But it has got to be a slow blend. There's 
concerns between different countries have different rules like the u.s is a lot different than europe europe is like very like you got to be really careful with that stuff there's it's not an easy thing to buy another newsletter and and swiftly quickly migrate it it's it's it takes months just to put it in perspective we bought arc watcher last um like august september that area uh, we're only just now finalizing the migration. So what's that like eight months later, right? So it, it takes it takes a lot of time. You have to be very meticulous and, and careful with how you do it. It's a great question. Well, I have one final question then, Kyle. If you have one last, I'll give you that chance as well. But uh, one more freebie, one more shout out. What's one more alternative investment that catches your interest? Maybe we brought it up briefly, but didn't like give it the full pitch it deserves or something uh, completely foreign to the conversation, believe it or not. Well, we definitely didn't spend as much time on music rights as I would have liked. That is definitely my personal favorite. Um, I'm a huge music fan, similar to other cash flow uh, generating um, you know, alternative assets. Music rights is absolutely up there. Um, so what, what's happened with music rights, the reason I love it so much is that um, if you look at like the history of uh, music, like back before streaming, right? So what would happen is like an artist would come out with an album and they would make like millions of dollars right away and then it would last and it would go on the charts and it would just fall and it would never like come back again, right? So you had like each album you released gave you like a nice big boost and your incentive was to keep releasing albums, okay? Um, with with streaming there's this whole like uh, everyone's kind of talking about streaming has killed the market for music and blah 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 and like that's not quite accurate at all like so artists definitely make less per album uh, than they would than they made back in like the CD or, or, or record or tape era right uh, but it's more consistent over time so if you look at the data you come out with an album there's a boost it's not as big. And it comes down, but then it just flattens out and it slowly goes up every year for like a decade now, a decade plus since Spotify has been out, right? So you, you have consistent cash flow now with music, right? With catalogs. They don't make as much, but that's great as a music investor. Now, the reason that's great is put yourself in the shoes of a starving artist musician, right? So let's say you have, you're making electronic music in your bedroom or you maybe you play guitar or whatever it is. And like you have a bunch of albums and you make like 30 grand a year, right? Not enough to like live on, but it's also like a hobby, but it's not really enough to like make the transition. You can't pay for touring. You can't pay for shows. Well, if a fund comes along and is like, hey, look, you know, I'll give you $120,000 right now for the forever rights to your existing catalog. You can keep making new music all you want. You know, um, I don't touch that, but that's to, to an artist. That's huge. That's a down payment on a house. That's, um, you know, that's, uh, that's like a real, like life changing amount of money for, for people. So, um, that's why I'm so excited about music rights is that like, no one's doing this on the low end. I mean, this catalog sales galore on the high end. I mean, uh, Bruce Springsteen just sold his catalog, like, um, Swift uh, back, you right? know, the uh, there's all sorts of. Yes. Yeah, she bought it bad. That's right. That's a whole other story. But but that all happens on the high end, you know, 10, 50, 100 million dollar sales. Like there's nothing happening like, you know, below a million bucks, you know. So 
that's that is definitely the the asset that we're most excited about. Oh, I shouldn't say we, but the one that I am personally most excited about. Plus, how cool would it be to just own the rights to like. Uh, what did I see the other day? Uh, Skilo uh, was selling the rights to um, I Wish I Was a Little Bit Taller uh, for like a couple hundred grand. Yeah. And like it makes like 28 grand a year. And it's like that's good. That's good cash flow. Like, you know, and I personally wouldn't buy that one because that's uh, taken from a sample from the 70s funk song. So you might as well just buy that song. And I won't get into it, but there's due diligence to be done. But the, the whole space is really interesting. That That is definitely the shout out I would give. I, I love the music rights space and uh, really look forward to being a part of it. That's awesome. I uh, We're hoping this is kind of a tangent, but we're hoping to get the Reneal from Audius on the podcast soon. That's just like a whole nother direction uh, about like Audius being he, – he gave us like a soft yes. He's, he gave us like a follow up in a few months. No, it's probably going to be a yes, but like we'll see. But, you know, bear market, Solana price kind of being eh, – so he might be awesome. – he might not be as busy as he was. So we'll see. <laughs> But I still think it's a cool idea. <laughs> yeah, th- there's interesting stuff happening at the intersection of music and NFTs. Yeah, I think that's it's that's a great idea. That's really cool. Awesome. Well, you've traveled far and wide. What is your favorite place in the world that you've been? Oh, man. I mean, that is like the best possible question you could ask. Um, are we talking – I'm going to fire this back at you real quick. Are you talking like – place to visit or like place like that you could like live or just like say, cool place or like go, you gotta you go gotta narrow it down <laughs> like short stay you know like vacation type energy the first time i went to bali i it was like you might as well put me on mars something about just the air like the way it smells there it would just i i can still smell it to this day um bali is like so like I live in Australia, like Bali is like Australia's Hawaii, right? It's like, it's like the place everyone goes, but it's like super cheap Hawaii. It's so close, but it's also like super cheap Hawaii. It's like you can get like, you know, stay in a four-star resort for, you know, a hundred bucks a night. Like I'm talking like four-star, you know. So um, it, it, it's like Aussies love Bali. Um, and I think like like the rest of the world has definitely like started to like realize Um and Bali was closed all during COVID. They didn't allow any tourists or anything like that. They're just now opening back up again. And the Balinese are beautiful people. They actually spent the whole time during COVID cleaning up the island because uh, it's such a beautiful island. And it just got trashed over the years. And so they spent a year and a half just cleaning up and making it beautiful again. Um, so, yeah, in terms of like just uh, it's, it's it, you know, it's changed over the years and um you know, it's definitely very different than how it was. I've heard stories of like the seventies. It was like totally pristine and stuff, but it's still a very large island. There's all sorts of untouched parts to it. Yeah. I mean, Bali is, is one of my favorite places in the world for sure. Amazing. Well, uh, we really appreciate your time. So if you, uh, our listeners want to learn more about you, I think the call to action here is pretty clear, but what should, where should we send our listeners? Alts.co is our website. We would uh, love to have you as, as a subscriber. Please join our community. And also, look, I mean, you know, if you like the vibe we're putting out there, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're hiring. And uh, we'll, if you're interested, like, and you've got skills, like, we can find a role for you. So we're just looking to bring a lot of more smart people on. We've got a great team. We're looking to add to it. Um, you know, uh, company is nothing without its, its uh, early team members. And we're still, we're still early. So, yeah, if you like what we're up to, you like what we're getting into, um, you know, just reach out to me, um, Stefan at alts.co. Uh, definitely check us out. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you. 
And that wraps up this conversation with Stefan from Altco. I thought it was a really fun time. I hope that you did as well. Three quick takeaways for me, and then we'll sign this thing off. I really liked the idea of subscriber growth through acquisition. It's kind of like an obvious one. It's like obvious and subtle, right? That's why I'm bringing it up. You can just buy a list. You know, if you're kind of impatient or don't want to try ways to get more subscribers, if you have money, if you're making money from some other way, just consider buying a list. That was really, really interesting. Uh, second was how his background at Flippa could be really, really helpful in all sorts of unanticipated ways. I kind of call this, you know, jobs being unexpectedly useful. It's not something that you can predict on the front end, you know, how a role at some company will prepare you for the following role. But in so, so many cases, it works out that way. So you don't have to take, you know, there's not a straight line path to ending up like Stefan and running a really cool business today. And then finally is the alpha in super immature markets. Stefan's projected returns are I mean, crazy high if you go through the fund documentation. Uh, I think crazy high, that's an opinion, of course. But you go through their documentation and see how they think they're going to beat the markets in these various asset classes. It's because one, some of the specific assets are too small for huge, huge funds to be paying attention to. And then a lot of these are just hobbyists are the ones making these trades. So they don't have sophisticated pricing models and you know a perfect idea of what the inventory is and all those kind of uncertain variables let people who can out-research everyone else, outperform everyone else. So I think that's really interesting. That's all I'm going to say for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're subscribed so you know about the next one and reach out to us on socials. We're easy to find at this point and our own descriptions are in the bio. Uh, it won't be hard for you to find us if you'd like to and say, hey, if you have any feedback. Otherwise, we'll be back in a few weeks with the next one. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.